Join us today during the Jeep Celebration event. Right now, get 20% below MSRP for an average of 15178 under MSRP on the purchase of a 2023 Jeep Grand Cherokee Overland 4xe or Summit 4xe. Not compatible with lease offers or with any other consumer incentive offers. 15,178 average based on 20% below average MSRP from all 2023 Grand Cherokee Overland 4xE and Summit 4xE models and dealer stock. Residency restrictions apply. Take retail delivery from dealer stock by 4-1. Jeep is a registered trademark. Hi folks, welcome to another episode of Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. I'm always honest with you about where and when I record these uh, little bits. You currently find me in the Algarve on holiday with the family. Uh, they've all been sworn to silence whilst I record my introduction to this week's episode of the podcast. Our trip so far has involved quite a lot of um, evening film watching, uh, being that introducing my dad to June, to the boys and I watching the first two episodes of the new Obi-Wan Kenobi series on Disney+, Plus, which has been scored by friend of the show, Natalie Holt, who previously did Loki. She has done the most extraordinary job with this show, and two episodes in, we are hooked. Anyway, they're all waiting for me to go to dinner for my dad's birthday. Totally just laying out on the table for you here right now. So um, I'm going to be quick and get into this week's episode, which I'm very excited about. Now, you're probably aware, unless you've been, I don't know, meditating in a cave somewhere, that Top Gun Maverick has hit cinemas a full 36 years after Mav, Goose, Iceman and co. first took to the skies, I feel the need, the need for speed. Uh, And to mark the occasion, I'm beyond thrilled and slightly flummoxed, to be honest, to welcome director Joe Kaczynski and the legend that is Jerry Bruckheimer to the podcast to discuss the iconic music of the original and how they retain the spirit of that music in the sequel. And with Jerry and Joe here, it is definitely worth reminding you that TGM, that's Top Gun Maverick, is showing at views 91 venues across the UK and Ireland right now. As Tom Cruise himself said, they made this film to be seen on the big screen. And View offers the ultimate big screen experience with the best seat, screen and sound, giving film lovers the chance to fully and truly completely immerse yourself and get lost in great stories like Top Gun Maverick without any pings and distractions from the outside world. I was lucky enough to see it last week and as you'll hear in my chat with the film's director and producer shortly, they have delivered something that sums up what I think is everything the big cinema experience should be. Rest assured, you will not be disappointed. And tickets are available from just £4.99 online at select venues, so it's an affordable day or night out too. For more information and tickets, just head to myview.com. That's myview.com. And so to Joe and Jerry. And where else could we begin than with Harold Faltermeyer's Top Gun anthem from the original movies? Now, I should say a few familiar faces return for this outing. So if you do want to see this completely fresh and be surprised, best do that before listening to this episode.
Jerry Joe, thank you so much for your time. I literally just came from the cinema from watching. And my heart is still racing. <laughs> I had all the emotions. I cried. I had an extra vein appear in my neck. I just was so exhilarated and impressed and entertained by the film. So huge congratulations. Thank you. That's the thanks. That's what we want to hear. Yes. Um, and what was really nice was I went back and watched the original last week. So it was kind of in my kind of, I guess, my psyche in a way. But what was so great, and I don't know if this is, well, we can talk about the, the music and where and how important it is within the film. But with the start of your film, Top Gun Maverick, you have a real familiarity there around the music. So you're almost like a comfort blanket in a way where you're kind of like, come on, it's going to be okay. And then we go on your journey with the film sonically as well as visually and stuff as well. Was that deliberate? An embracing of the, the old film with the music and, and things as well? I was going to say, yeah, absolutely. I, I saw the first movie as a 12-year-old kid. So for me, the idea <laughs> of having that bell you know and then <laughs> the Harold Faltermeyer theme right at the beginning you know did exactly what you said which is it tells you this is a Top Gun movie we love Top Gun as much as you do mm -hmm. uh, so come along for you know the next chapter but then as you said you know a few minutes later after we hear you know another classic song and the theme uh, it does take its own turn and tells its own story and you start to hear you know, a, a new reinterpretation through the hands of Hans Zimmer mm. of some of those classic themes. How does it feel? How does that 12-year-old feel now, having just made this film? Uh, it's a little surreal. <laughs> I've, I've only watched it with an audience twice finished. Once at CinemaCon in Las Vegas and then at the San Diego premiere. And mm. to hear the audience reacting and laughing and mm. sniffling and cheering, <laughs> you know, for us, that's, I think that's why we make movies, mm. for that reaction. Jerry, when you, when the decision was made to make Top Gun Maverick, and you're thinking about the music and how it's going to sound. And I know that music's such a big part of, of your role as a producer in, in film. When do you start thinking about it? When did you start thinking about, well, we, we need that, but we need the now as well as that? Well, music is, in my career has been very important, going back to Flashdance. And even before that, I worked with Maurice Jarre, who was one of the great composers, Academy Award winner, on a picture early in my career. So, you know, I love very simple melodies really easy to remember. Mm -hmm. And we found Hans Zimmer. I heard a movie that he did. And there's something about the European sensibility with composers that I love. And Hans is, is brilliant. He can, he's written so many scores for us <laughs> through the years. And he's just a, an amazing artist. And he keeps getting better yeah. as he gets older. I love going to his concerts. I don't know if you've seen his concert, yeah. but it's absolutely brilliant. 
to listen to all those scores uh, that he's done uh, from The Lion King and goes on and mm-hmm. on and on, Batman, and just it's just an amazing that one man could have created so much beautiful music. And music is, is kind of tells the audience the emotion that you want them to feel. Yeah. So it's so important for me as, as far as, as telling our story musically. And we're very fortunate, Joe and I, very early on, heard the Lady Gaga song, and we got really excited hearing that song. And we flew over here to London to, to present it to Tom and McHugh yeah. and to Hans, as a matter of fact. So we went to Hans's studio, which is in Soho, and I was very nervous, I got to tell you, because I love the song so much. <laughs> and I was afraid that somebody was going to reject it. <laughs> and so we played it in Hans's studio. And Tom just leapt up and just loved it. Yeah. And then Hans started playing the melody on his synth of her song. And he said, we should use this as a love thing. And McHugh got all excited too. So that was, that was a relief, I got to tell you, for me, because I would hate to have lost that song. <laughs> yeah. that awkward silence where you put on and was like oh don't think it's quite right <laughs> yeah that would have been horrible what were the conversations you had with gaga though in terms of the ask for that song you know had she did had she read the script had she seen where were you with the film with the guards she to that? wrote that song just having heard a kind of a summary of what the story was about and what the themes of the film were and yeah. she wrote that song and like jerry said you know we we went over and heard it for the first time and it was the melody that really stood out. And, you know, the fact that Hans Zimmer was able to take that and build a whole love theme out of it says a lot about what a classic, what a classic melody it is. And then, you know, obviously you save the the real version for the end of the film and it, it wouldn't be a Bruckheimer movie without a big, you know, <laughs> tremendous song at the end of the film. So I was thrilled that, you know, we finally had kind of found that piece of the puzzle. Mm. It's really beautiful because in the original film, there are so many pieces of music that are iconic with that story, with the characters, whether it be the piece in the piano at the bar, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, and we'll put this out after the film's released, so we're not going to spoil things for people and also just, you know, so that we can talk about it. But there are kind of nods to certain things here, that the Jerry Lee Lewis is, is there sort of thing. But there's also new things as well. That's really important to get that balance right of it being that kind of 
the nod to whether it be characters or narrative or storyline, but also bringing up to date that Who track is so great in, in the film as well. What's the conversations around what tracks you're going to use and what you're not going to use and if they're important and, and will it be too much or what's getting that balance right? Yeah, it's got to be a blend of old and new, um, which the story is. And like you said, character wise, we've got some faces from the original film, but we have a lot of new faces as well. Um, the soundtrack had to be a blend of old and new. So, you know, we tried everything. I mean, we, <laughs> we put in hundreds of tracks trying to find the right tone for the film. But obviously, Gaga was a huge part of it. Uh, Ryan Tedder came in uh, with the uh, song for the beach scene, which was another really hard yeah. one to fill because Kenny Loggins playing with the boys is so iconic. Um, one that fit the tone of our film. The other thing is, and it's more subtle, but Hans used the danger zone theme and worked that in uh, to um, both at the beginning and end of the film in a really subtle way. So you're just, it's, you're kind of blending all this stuff into this Top Gun soup and you're hearing these themes kind of pop in and out. And, uh, you know, that was, that took a long time to figure that out. Even kind of chord progressions, you kind of, there's a, you kind of go, oh, I feel comfortable or familiar here, or it's really, it's it's so clever. You kind of, I think we, that's why I do this podcast, because I think that relationship is so special between music and, and the story and the cards and art that we, we kind of take it for granted in a way. But I guess that's what you're trying to do in a way. We don't want people to think about it too much. You've also got, you know, in a film like this, the, the sound of the jets. Oh my gosh, is physical. So, yeah, it's so physical. <laughs> and trying to find frequencies where music and sound effects can live together, it, it takes a lot of work. And that's something that Hans has a tremendous amount of experience with. He knows what type of instrumentation is going to work against what type of sound design. So whether it's working in different octaves or working in different frequencies, um, that's just something that his decades of experience kind of comes into play to figure out. I feel like for quite a long period of the time, I held my breath because you are absolutely blown away by these kind of air combat or practice sessions that the, you know, your, your fantastic cast are, are, are taking part in. And that one scene, I mean, he does it numerous times, but where he takes off from the aircraft hangar when Tom, and you're kind of like, you know, when you're in a, one of those kind of really bad, 
things at a fair where you motion sort of, I don't know what they're called, the kind of, um, it's like a fun fair ride, but you're in a little capsule and it's about motion kind of capture yeah. thing. You In your seat in the cinema, you feel yourself almost kind of moving out the way of things. It's so immersive. It's such a physical experience watching this film. Well, I think the the reason is because these f- scenes were captured for real. Yeah. There's something you you feel emotionally when you see people going through real forces. You just can't fake that. Uh, if we had shot it on a soundstage, when you see their faces distorting, when you see their bodies getting thrown side to side, when you see Miles fall out of his straps when he goes inverted over the mountain, that's all really happening. Oh no! Yeah. So. There's some something that happens in our minds where we can just tell when something's happening for real, and I think it has a real emotional effect. Mm. And um, you know that's how movies used to be made. Yeah. So uh, it's kind of fun to show audiences. You know, when you shoot it for real, there's a real benefit to that. Even though it was, it took a lot more work to figure <laughs> out how to do it. Did you expect that? I knew that Tom would be able to do it. I Have think work with we both before, knew yeah. that. But Jerry from the beginning said, you know, on the first film, anyone else that tried to go in those jets, uh, their eyes would roll back in their head and they'd pass out and none of the footage <laughs> was usable. Um, so what we did on this, Tom designed a an aerial training course for all the actors to go through. It was three months and it took them from a Cessna, which is like a small training plane, and graduated the, them up step by step to the point we could put them in an F-18 Super Hornet. So when they were pulling seven Gs in a turn, uh, rather than just passing out or throwing up, they they had been acclimated to it and were able to continue shooting their scenes. It doesn't mean it was easy for them. Mm. It was still very, very difficult. But they were able to pull these scenes off. And, and because everyone's in the jet, it just opens the film up so much more when you're, everything you're seeing is real. And it, and it just it elevates the whole film. So um, I think, you know, they're all inspired by what Tom's, you know, his career and what he's done up to this Mm -hmm. point. And he would never put himself in any situation or put them in any situation that he hadn't gone through himself. So uh, just the fact that they all did it really helps the film. It's almost a bit like life imitating art or art imitating life in a way in terms of Tom's the Top Gun teacher in real life for these for these guys in oh, a way. Definitely. No, they, they learned so much from him and admire his career. And, you know, I think he inspired them. And, you know, hopefully they'll all go off and have these incredible careers and take what they learned and apply it yeah. in their own lives. Jerry, do you mind talking a little bit about getting to that journey to the point where you, where it was, the film was ready to go to start shooting in terms of what that journey involved and, and, and kind of, you know, and, and when you know it's kind of a Koei good to go. You never know it's the right time. It just sort of <laughs> happens. Everybody's on the same page or close to the same page and then you start shooting. But this has been going on for 35 years, 36 years, trying to get a sequel to Top Gun. It's not that we didn't want to make one. We mm-hmm. did. Don Simpson and myself worked on some ideas and some scripts that never quite made it. I think Tom took a crack at it too many years ago. At least we heard he did. And then we started developing this about six, seven years ago again. But we never got it right. And Joe came along and told me a story that I really loved. And I said, well, let's go pitch it to Tom. So we flew to Paris and Tom was shooting Mission Impossible. So we had about a 30-minute break in between setups. And Joe went in there. He had a a lookbook and a poster that he made, and he just told him the story. And Tom took out his cell phone and called the head of Paramount and said, I want to make another Top Gun. 
And that's what happened. How did, how did that feel? Well, it's so hard to get a movie greenlit <laughs> and to watch Tom do it with a phone call was something, yeah, I'll never forget. But I had worked with Tom before and I knew that for him, it's all about the emotional journey of this character. It yeah. had to be a character-driven story. So, you know, coming in from the outside, not having been involved with the development up to that point and just kind of looking at where they were. Uh, for me and remembering my memories of the first film that, you know, for me, the relationship that really has endured is Maverick and Goose. That's the one that people remember, the notion of a wingman being someone that always has your back no matter what. We use it in life. Yes. In, no, in conversation. It's <laughs> That's the one that stuck with me. So the idea of Maverick having to reconcile with Goose's son set against this mission that would take them both deep into enemy territory seemed to be I thought would be something that Tom would be able to kind of wrap his head around and start to give him the yeah. emotional reason to do it. And as soon as I said that, I could see the wheels in his head start yeah. turning. Yeah. <laughs> and then and then I kind of moved on to, yeah. you know, the Dark Star sequence and what Maverick's been up to and talked about shooting it practically. But I really think it was the emotional journey is what Tom needed to think about going back and then... Um, that was the beginning. You know, that was almost exactly five years ago. So it's been quite a journey to get to this point. Um, well, I think that's another great thing about the film is the kind of is the the breadth of of kind of emotion you feel watching it. You know, as I say, you get exhilarated and stuff, but you bring it right back to human emotion in those beautiful scenes. Whether that be that gorgeous scene with with Tom and Val, that is standalone scene is just absolutely gorgeous and a really emotional, really, really moving piece to, to, to watch. And it's lovely as well because you get to see Tom kind of, you know, bring it back to real kind of drama and kind of brilliant acting, which we know he's great at, but you can, there's no, there's no, you know, planes or helmets or it's just pure emotion between two men and this really friendship that goes back to that first film as well. And it's really, really, really beautiful and moving that piece. Oh, thank you. Yeah, it catches you by surprise. It really does. It? Yeah. yeah really really does and I, I guess that you know and, and having Val back there as well is just that's another kind of like hold your breath moment of seeing those two and it's nostalgic but it's not it's kind of it's 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 a really kind of almost its own thing I think the whole film in a way as well but there was one cue that I wanted to ask you about as well which was where Tom says I was trying to be the father he lost and there's the most amazing cue of music in in that that scene sort of thing as well but also i love how there isn't an abundance of cue music in there you've been really brilliant in holding back and not overloading it and there's moments of silence and just presence as well but that cue is really quite yeah, I mean, something that's hans that's hans's expertise that was something that he wrote for that scene very early and just always seemed to work a very delicate scene like that that's and talk about two great actors you know jennifer Connolly and tom in that scene who have somehow never crossed paths in their long careers unbelievable which, uh, is amazing because they've both been working in such incredible uh built such incredible careers but to have those two in that scene which is very intimate um and very important to the film uh you know hans knew that he had to be very delicate and not interfere in that particular scene um so again that's you know for me it's just about trying to assemble the absolute best team i absolutely could uh, and that's where it pays off when you've got those three people working together on it
Tom's little face at the window whilst he's looking in the pub as Miles is playing the piano as well. That's heartbreaking. Miles, I mean, we know Miles can play the drums amazingly from Whiplash. Is that him playing the piano? It is. He worked for months. Whoa. Yep. He worked for months to prepare for that. And I think I've heard that we were actually putting his version of that song on the soundtrack. Yes. So you'll hear him play and sing. Uh, that song. So yeah, he he he, like everyone, put everything into preparation mm. for the film. You shake my nerves and you rattle my brain. Too much love drops a man insane. You broke my will, but what a thrill! Goodness gracious, balls of fire! I laughed at love because I thought it was funny, but you came along and you proved me, honey. I changed my mind. This love is fine. Goodness gracious, balls of fire! Was that an easy role to cast? Because there's an incredible, there feels like there's a real connection between Miles and Anthony, kind of visually, wordly in a way, but also just kind of... There's a great chemistry with Miles and Tom, you know, so it kind of works full circle. Was that an easy role to cast? Well, I had just come off a movie with Miles and was so impressed with him. Mm. And the visual resemblance was something I actually showed a picture to Tom in that first meeting of of Miles with a mustache. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But, you know, Miles had to earn it by, uh, you know, going through an audition process. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad we did it because in auditioning him for Rooster, we had Glenn Powell come in for the same role. And while Glenn was reading for Rooster, Jerry leaned over to me and said, he'd make a great hangman. <laughs> and Jerry's got this amazing eye for talent, obviously. Uh, and, you know, Miles ended up getting the Rooster role, which was the right one for him. But um, we had to convince Glenn to take on the role of hangman. Um you know, and, and, and Tom really made an amazing case for why Glenn should be in the movie to him. Uh, and, and luckily we did because, you know, they both ended up in the perfect roles. Mm. Yeah, we wanted, uh, kind of a funny story, we wanted Glenn to come back in to, for, for the hangman role, and his agent said, no chance. He's not doing the part. Don't even bother. Wow. <laughs> Don't bother. And we called the agent again and said, look, just have him come in, sit with Tom. And he said, okay, just so you know, he's not doing the part. And I have an email from the agent that I think Joe has framed (laughs) of him saying there's no chance he's doing this part. (laughs) I'm glad he proved his agent wrong. (laughs) And he sat in a room with Tom for an hour. And the first question he asked is, how do I have a career like yours? And he said, pick the movies, not the parts. Oh, that's interesting. I mean, that's, if you want advice of anyone in this business, Tom Cruise is the one you exactly. want to offer. I watched him blow Glenn Powell's mind in that moment because I think Glenn realized he had gone, he had been thinking about it in the wrong way. It's not picking roles. It's pick a great movie and then make the role great, which is exactly what Glenn did in this film because the role was not as big on the page and Glenn took on the role and made it you know, turned it into something greater than what was there. And, you know, hopefully this is the 
start mm. of a very long and great career for him. Don't think, just do, basically. Exactly. No, that was kind of it. You're right. That was kind of it. That's exactly it. I heard this great story, um, Monica, talking about with the um, the American football scene on the beach, where she was she was kind of just slightly observing the boys kind of being boys, you know, and trying to out kind of muscle each other. And she said she made this great little slow-mo film of it's raining, playing it's raining men um, and slow-moed them over it kind of thing. And I just wondered whether you played music on set at all and whether that was anything that you, you know, in terms of scenes like... I think music was playing in our heads (laughs) while we were shooting it. Um, Yeah. Listen, that was one of those scenes. Every actor has that scene that they circle on the calendar, you know, that they have to keep their eyes on. And that certainly was one of them. they all wanted to live up to the legend of the original, so they all got in incredible shapes and starved themselves, and, <laughs> you know, dehydrated themselves probably. But when we got there, you know, the sun was setting, the camaraderie you feel among the cast on the screen was there mm. in real life as well, which always makes it easier. Yeah. And we just had fun, you know, yeah. and I just tried to shoot the hell out of it because, <laughs> um, you know, the the original scene is so iconic and... Uh, you know, what we wanted to do with this film is make sure that we weren't just shooting the scene to shoot the scene, but that it was pushing the story forward. Mm. And our screenwriters came up with a great reason for us to be on the beach for that moment, a great reason for Maverick to have his students out there. And um, we just had, we had fun. The scary thing was we didn't quite finish it. And the actors weren't quite sure when they were going to have to come back and do it. So they had to stay on these diets. <laughs> So it was a scary thing every time that Joe would say, well, I think we might shoot her next week. And uh, they'd go, oh, Just no. want to go and have a burger and yeah. chips. <laughs> Painful. They're young and you know, they, they look great. Um, we've talked about about um, Han and, and, and also Gaga. Obviously, that Harold Faltenmeyer kind of is, is, you know, he's in there. But also Lauren Balf, who's a huge talent. And I just wanted to ask what kind of Lauren's involvement was and how important he was to that collaboration and team effort on, on, on this film. I mean, it really was a, a team effort, all four of them. You know, when you look at that lineup, it's just unbelievable between... Lady Gaga, Hans Zimmer, Held Faltemar, Lauren Balf. You can feel all their personalities yeah. in the score as you listen to the film. You know, you can feel those little accents and you think, is that really going to work? Mm. You know, can you really put four people together and create a score that feels cohesive? But in this case, it, it did work. You know, yeah. Harold's themes are so memorable and so iconic. Um, there's some, Timeless as well. It is. It's amazing how well it's aged. I mean... You know, for someone, especially who's working with, you know, synthesizers in the 80s, you'd wonder, can it feel relevant today? But there are tracks in this film that are basically untouched. Yeah. There's some real, you know, classic Harold Faltermeyer themes in there.
yeah, it was a, a team effort. I think they all have relationships except for Gaga. You know, I think the other three of them have, yeah. have relationships that go back for decades. Lauren came up under Hans and yeah. Harold and Hans apparently grew up in the same apartment building in Munich or something like that. They were telling me. So there's, wow. there's some. Hans had a studio in this apartment building and Harold lived there. It was, it's all this, they were all interconnected. That's so amazing. There's all this deep history, which is maybe why it all, it all just kind of came together and worked. And even, I didn't realize as well that, um, uh, George and Rhoda had done Danger Zone originally with, with Kenny back yeah. in, and then, you know, I love Tron Legacy score as well. P Daft Punk, that was amazing. I mean, it's, we listened to it so much in the car. Me, my boys, so they love it so much. And that then introduced them to Daft Punk in a kind of other way that they've got that great Giorgio track that he, they, my kids yes. listen to on repeat. So there's this weird kind of, you know, it's like, yeah, like three the, steps of kind of connection. It is. They're always. all connected, all these amazing mm. musicians. And it's just, for me, I've been very lucky, and I'm sure Jared would say the same, to work with like musicians of this talent. And it is so important to the yeah. emotional experience of the film. So... I love that you've got Kenny in there. Yeah. Yeah, me too. Was there any question, was there any, any point it wasn't going to be, it was always going to be? Danger Zone has yeah. to be. And like you said, it's even, <laughs> it's even in the score of the film. Yeah. Um, so, and he was at the premiere. I saw. Which was awesome. Uh, so yeah, having, having Kenny in the film, that's like one of the necessary elements you need to have in a Top Gun movie. In, in that side of it you know this is this is such an important character to him and bringing him back and like you say about being about an emotional journey this character but how involved does he does he get in this side of it he's he's involved in every aspect of, of the movies he makes uh, and it's very fortunate for people like myself that he is involved yeah because he's a better producer than I'll ever be he's, he's all over everything he's worked with so many talented actors writers and directors and tom is a sponge he listens he's a great listener he listens to people and he absorbs it and then he uses it and we are the benefit of his 30 some years of learning how to make a movie how to how to tell a story how to work with composers how to work with editors and for for me it was so terrific to watch how he's blossomed yeah. as an artist and a creator and an actor and a producer. And he just added so much to this movie. His, his, his skills are endless. So we're very fortunate that he wanted to make another movie and I got another chance to work with him. Mm. Do you think he'll ever direct? He should, but I'm not sure he will. I think he likes the collaboration because he could. He's got, there's no reason why he couldn't direct but I think he likes the creative collaboration. He likes the bouncing of ideas. He likes the push and pull of the creative mm. process. I think he, he thinks that makes the film better. So who knows? What do you think your 12-year-old self would make of the new film? Oh, my gosh. That's, <laughs> what would yeah. he come bounding out the cinema saying? Think? I think he'd be. I think he'd be pretty pumped. You know, um, he, he was already into airplanes. He was already into Top Guns. So I think this would 
this would be right down the, you know, this would be a bullseye for him. Well, he's he's reliving it with his sons. He's got two young boys. So I have he, a 12 year old son. So I got to watch it with him at the premiere last week. So it is kind of, it is a very generational thing. I've got a 13 and he can't, we've, you know, we've been in the cinema a couple of times and every time the trailer comes on, he's like, can't wait to see it. Isn't that great? It's so, that so great. And you wonder, like, yeah. sometimes you wonder what it is that they're going to be interested in. But for them to be interested in, in a film like this is really exciting. Well, listen, you deserve all the, the kind of the praise the film's getting so far. And audiences are just going to lap it up. And I, I can't wait to go back and see it again, to be honest, as well with my boys. So thank you so much for your time and congratulations. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks so for much. having us. It's thank a you. pleasure. You're excellent. Soundtrack to TGM, that's I Ain't Worried by One Republic, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Joe Kaczynski and Jerry Bruckheimer. My huge thanks to Joe and Jerry for taking the time to talk to me. As I mentioned, you can watch it at your local view right now. Just head to myview.com for details. And if you want to hear my conversations with Hans Zimmer and Lauren Balf, head to edithbowman.com where you'll also find every single episode of the podcast and our email address, should you wish to leave us a message. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK and please do leave us a comment on those channels too. We always do our very best to respond. Next up, a lady I've been trying to get on the podcast for a very long time. Anne Dudley is an inspirational creative, be that from her time as a member of Art of Noise through to winning an Oscar and everything that she's done in between and since then. Anne Dudley, next week's guest on the podcast. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. Mm-hmm.